I'm Rob. I'm Richard. And welcome to the Goodies Pirate Podcast. We're diving into Series 9. Here we are on to Episode 70. This is our Platinum Jubilee, guys. <laughs> and we are looking at Snow White 2, Ooh. sometimes known as Pantomime or Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Again, more of a description than an episode title. Now, this was first shown on the 27th of December, 1981, which was a Sunday at 7.15pm. But... It wasn't shown on the BBC. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> so normally when we get to the first episode of a new season, we end it with a discussion about where the goodies are now and where the series is now. Given that the change here is so fundamental to what we're about to discuss, rather than sort of dropping it in throughout the episode and then having a limp version at the end, we're going to bring it forward. So when we ask the question, where are the goodies now? The answer is not on the BBC. No, they're actually on ITV, or more specifically, London Weekend Television. So Richard, to give us some context, let's get the quick update on exactly what LWT and ITV are. London Weekend Television is, or was, one of the ITV franchises. So the idea behind ITV is when they were formed in the, in the early 50s, it was deemed that no one company would have the resources to provide TV coverage to the entire country. So Britain, this is a very quick history, but Britain basically was broken up into regions, and that was largely done by population tenders, I think. And then they allowed tenders for the franchises for each region. The idea was, obviously, that once they had these franchises in place and they were all producing television content, because it was, in theory, a network, they could all share programming and help defray their production costs and that sort of stuff by sharing content around the different licensees and the different companies. And that's why when we watch British television over here in Australia... The stuff that wasn't BBC all had all these very strange idents like yes. Thames Television, LWT, Yorkshire Television. That's right. And that, that's where all that came yeah. from. Yeah, Thames probably being the most famous ident, I think, probably for any of the ITV franchises. Yes. Yeah, so the idea was obviously that they would share content. Now, for some of the larger regions, they didn't just have an ITV franchise, they actually broke it down into weekday and weekend providers. You'd have one company or one television company doing from Monday morning through to about tea time on Friday, and then you would then change over and you would have the other company doing from Friday until close on, because this obviously is the days when TV stations used to close at night. Yeah, you'd have from tea time on Friday through to close of transmission on Sunday. For those, it was actually an official handover and change of identity and all that sort of stuff. And there is an entire podcast probably in the history or a large book in the history of ITV. But there were a few changes to the ITV corporations over the years. The first major review of the franchises was in 1968 when a lot of the, the franchises were reshuffled. The only one actually, just as a small aside, Granada up in the northwest, who probably most famous for Coronation Street, are the only of the original ITV franchises that survived right until the very end when ITV was all merged into one corporation. They're the only one of the original stations that survived all the way through. And he's still a production company of some sort? Uh, in now? theory, yes. The yeah. name does, in theory, still exist. Yeah. But specifically for London, after the 1968 shake-up, there were two new companies formed, one of which was Thames, who had the weekday programming. And again, as we said, probably the most famous uh, UK TV ident, I think, of them all. Yes. But for the weekend one, London Weekend Television. <laughs> Thank you. 
by the time the goodies moved to London Weekend TV, they've been going for about 12 or 13 years. They've had some quite big productions. Um, Cat Weasel was one of theirs on the buses. <laughs> Whatever you might think, it was very popular. Yes. Upstairs, downstairs. At that time, one of their more popular shows was The Professionals. Okay. But probably important very clearly of the show, it was a business, it was a commercial enterprise. Yes. And it was run for profit. All the ITV franchises were commercial operations as opposed to the BBC being the government run. Sure. So the goodies have clearly been on the BBC now for eight series spanning nearly 12 years. Yes. Why do they leave? Is it because they want to go to IVTV or they can't go to the BBC or are they asked to leave? Um, what is the impetus for this change? They have noted that there was a change in the BBC's attitude to them when they came back to do Series 8. They obviously, after Series 7, they took another year off, as we've talked about, and then there was strike action and all that sort of stuff. The BBC's attitude towards them, they, they felt, had changed somewhat. Yes, they commissioned a new series, but they felt it wasn't terribly well promoted. They had the problems where the last script, the change of life script was dropped. They'd had the BBC over Series 7 had nixed a couple of ideas that they had for the scripts. After Series 8 had screened, their idea was that they would do another Christmas special for transmission in late 1980 and then would go into another full series in 1981. Now, the BBC then said, well, no, we never actually agreed to that, which, of course, obviously probably upset them even more. And the BBC then really just kept stalling them. Oh, yeah, we'll get back to you. Oh, look, maybe can you just wait? We haven't really decided yet. Now, the issue is then revealed to be the BBC are undertaking a TV production of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, I probably don't need to explain what that is, but it had been immensely popular radio show. Douglas Adams then suddenly found himself on the bestseller list when he novelised it. It had been a successful record release from the radio productions. The radio things had been repeated numerous times because people kept clamouring to hear them again. The BBC want to capitalise on that and they want to get a TV series into production. They basically commissioned a pilot and then if that was went well with the test audiences, they then put the money into another five episodes with the option then to do another series at the end of that. Now, the big issue was it was a very, very expensive series to produce. And possibly more importantly for the goodies, it had a huge demand on the special effects department at the BBC. Yes, um, an, an excellent series, I have to add. Yes, oh look, I thought it was really, really good. And I mean, look, particularly when you look at how some of the animation and that was actually done. And you've got a lot of model work on it, you've got a lot of yeah. special effects. I mean, something as simple as, say, for Beam of Rocks' second head yes. was a huge amount of work. And uh, it was, particularly considering it broke down all the time. But <laughs> um, yeah, and, and there was that story that in 1980, really, all the BBC special effects did that year was Doctor Who and Hitchhikers and the goodies being such an effects extensive show, really, that the BBC just kept stalling them and stalling them. But also, it's important to add a comedy series that was effects intensive, yes. like you know, Doctor Who Hitchhikers. You can't do sci fi or sci fantasy without a special effects department. No, the goodies you can get the BBC going, Well, we have this sitcom, and suddenly it's taking up a huge special effects budget what's going on the thing with the goodies wasn't even really cost it was actually just time yeah. and planning and setting the stuff up but there was sort of that thing that they felt that the BBC had really lost interest in them they're making not the nine o'clock news and the alternative comedy is now starting to take off and there are actually quotes in Andrew Pixley's book Super Chaps 3 there are some quotes in there from John Howard Davies who was the guy who originally commissioned the goodies I mean look they're, they're done 30 years later but his feeling was at the time that, look, they'd done eight series. Really, this show was now getting probably to the end of its lifespan as far as they were concerned, you know. Well, what we've said before that we've watched now, the transformation of the goodies from being a, a, a bunch of young comedians pushing mm. against the establishment and being a, a bit outrageous, a bit different, pushing the comedy envelope, 
to kind of just being very comfortable establishment television. And, and, and it's all great, but you can see that change in them. Yes. I think the point was made, look, the reason it probably kept getting commissioned was that it reached a very broad audience that a lot of other comedy shows didn't. But there is that thing, look, they've done eight years, they've done 70 episodes by this point, you know, really. It's probably time we did something else. They had had an offer on the table from LWT. The offer was three years and three filmed specials to go across there, and it was at more money. Apparently, of the three of them, Tim actually was reluctant to go. He actually was more inclined to stay with the BBC, but when they had a vote, Graham and Bill both voted yes. Tim was keen to stay, but did he know that there was the possibility of more goodies? Again, it was more that sort of thing, well, if Hitchhikers is successful, we might want to do another series of that, and if we don't, well, maybe we'll look at you guys again. It's easy to say, look, they went for the money, Yes, that is easy to say, but the BBC were not offering them money. No. And as I think they themselves made the point, well, look, we aren't millionaires. We need to keep working and regular work. You know, we've all got mortgages to pay, families to feed, etc. Yeah, it wasn't a case of the BBC offering some and I've been no. offering more. No. The BBC didn't have an offer on the table. No, that's correct. So, yes, they signed a contract to go uh, to ITV. Now, we'll probably a little later perhaps have the talk about how that turned out for them. As I face it, as we all know, there was only one series on ITV. But in 1981, they started producing for ITV. So the final thing we just want to have in this conversation is, we'll say it up front, the reputation among Goody's fans for this series is that it is rather terrible. Now, whether that's a fair assessment is something we're going to look at over the next seven weeks. Yep. But certainly it has a very poor reputation. Interesting to note, though, that four of the episodes for this are not this week's episode, but... Football Crazy, Robot, Bigfoot, and Change of Life were all released by ITV on commercial VHS quite soon after the run. Yes, back when VHS tapes cost like £35 each or something. But, yeah, but yeah. I certainly remember that being in the video store, or yes. video library at the time. So I saw four of those episodes fairly regularly. Yeah. Having said that about maybe the fans think it's a weaker season, it's interesting because when we did... KittenCon, and we sort of were talking to fans there and the, the stuff that was on in the video room. The ITV episodes actually were immensely popular because it was very much a case a lot of the people hadn't seen them for nearly 20 years, didn't really remember them that well. In the UK, as we know, the goodies sort of got one run, the occasional repeat, but not a lot, and then they faded from existence. Mm. The BBC seasons were on regular rotation on the ABC for a number of years after they were going right up until the early 90s. Yep. Now, the ABC and the BBC obviously have a... Uh, first refusal policy mm-hmm. in terms of content they make. In other words, anything BBC makes, the ABC gets first dibs. Yep. And if they buy it, and they certainly bought the goodies. ITV obviously doesn't have that deal. Mm. So it is actually Channel 7. Yes, they're shown on here. Channel 7 here. That's so right. it is actually, again, cut up, shown with ads, and didn't get many repeats, and was never part of that BBC repeat mm-hmm. rather than the ABC. No, uh, the Channel 7 run was really one show, one repeat, Yeah, I think, and then disappeared into TV obscurity. Now, I'll just put in my little bit here. I have never seen these episodes before because where I was living in country Victoria, it was the ABC and a commercial network that took its feed from, I believe, Channel 9. So I never saw the episode screened on Channel 7 and I've, I've never seen them before. What I'm interested in for you two, when you saw these originally, do you remember whether they felt different to the BBC run of episodes that you'd seen? 
at that time. I do remember them being screened here on Channel 7, and I do remember Channel 7 did make a big deal of the fact that they had the new season of the goodies. Mm. Uh, I remember they did give it a, a, quite a bit of promotion at the time, or what seemed to be at age, what, 12 or 13, to be quite a bit of promotion. Yeah. Did they feel different to the BBC episodes? I, I should remember, even though I was very young, I remember it being different, partly purely because it wasn't on the ABC, it yeah. was broken up with adverts, which yeah. was very weird. But there was just something about tone that seemed different. I think partly because they looked physically a lot older. The way it's filmed is very different. Or the opening credits are very different. Yes, I did have that sort of vibe. As I said, I do remember watching them. I do remember being disappointed with some of them. Particularly when I first saw it, actually the one we're going to talk about today. I do remember being quite disappointed by that when I saw that. And a couple of the ones towards the end of the run. Hello, holidays. But to be honest, actually, watching them back for this... And, and look... At least one bonus of them being on LWT was that's the only complete season of the goodies you can actually buy on DVD. There has been that chance to at least watch the entire run. I'm coming with you, Richard. Having now started the process of watching these back, there's a couple that I've never seen before, and there's one that I do remember having watched on Channel 7, but it wasn't mm. a video release, so I don't mm. remember it well. The other four I've seen a few times. Watching them back for this, there are some actually quite good episodes. I don't think that there's a classic in the next run of seven, but there are some that I quite enjoy. However, there are some very bad ones, and I think that the uh, objectively worst episode of The Goodies is in this run. Yeah, look, I'd probably agree with the fact, no, I don't think there is an out-and-out classic in this run. I actually found them do better than I remembered. And some of the material, yeah, as Dave said, is actually really quite good. So given all of that, we've discussed where The Goodies are now. They are on LWT we get into the first episode of the season, which is Snow White 2. Yes, it wasn't the first one screened here. I think it was actually mid-run here. The first one screened here was Bigfoot. There you go. But it it was the one that opened the ITV run in Britain, yes. It is. Now, before I ask for your general opinions on the episode, I want to make the comment that given that this was the launch of their new season on a new network, I think it is a quite surprising creative choice that it doesn't open with something very traditional. Mm. It doesn't open, for example, with the goodies theme. We don't see that until the next episode, their new version of the theme. Yep. It doesn't open with a very traditional goodies, whether it's a satire like they were doing in season eight, whether it's you know their version of you know, the COD episode or King Kong or Graham being a mad scientist or a really classic, familiar, trope-driven episode that could make the whole audience go, okay, this is the goodies, they're back. Yes, they're on a different network, but I feel comfortable. Mm. And also showing off the money they had. Now, we'll talk in a few episodes in the next few weeks about where you do see the extra money that ITV is giving them. You don't really see it as much here. You said a bit, but I just think if you're launching on ITV, this is a really odd choice of how to do it. Now, this screened on December 27, is that right? Yes. So this is at Christmas... It is panto season, I suppose. So in that sense, I can understand why they've gone for that particular vibe. I suppose they knew when they were going to have their slot, more or less. But I agree with you, Dave. If you are making the jump to another network, it would have made more sense, I suppose, to go with the traditional tropes of the show. Have the trandom, have the office, you know, doing something anywhere. Open with goody, goody, yum, yum. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. I was just going to say, they did have some issues around some of the show's tropes and familiar objects when they moved to ITV. For example, the Trandom was a prop 
owned by the BBC. So they actually had to make another... Well, it wasn't. It was actually made for a Kleenex commercial, I think it was. And they basically lifted that one to use on the ITV because the original train and prop was owned by the BBC. And I, th- I think there were a few other things that they had some issues with. We, we probably can't do that. So it, it sounds a bit like when Clarks and Main Hammond went across from Top Gear to the, the yeah. Grand Tour. All right, well, let's get into it properly. Snow White 2, what did we think, Rob? It is the shock of the new for me. So uh, my viewing of it is a bit coloured by that. For what it is, it's mostly entertaining. But is it the goodies? I had a bit of a hard time with it. So... Look, there were some definitely entertaining parts to it. Was it the goodies that I grew up with? No, and sometimes I wonder whether my love for the goodies and my amusement of it is more born from nostalgia than anything mm. else. And watching something like this cold and new and never having seen it before, was I'm not quite sure whether my reaction to it was coloured by that fact, but we'll see. I certainly, like you, Rob, watched this for the first time for this podcast. It's not one I have any memory of seeing at the time of screen and it wasn't on the VHS. For the first 10 to 15 minutes... I was really enjoying this. I was laughing a lot. There's some really good gags in there. And I thought, actually, this is really good. Why haven't I seen this before? I think the second half, however, is kind of awful. Mm. And I got very little out of it. So for me, it is very much an episode of two halves. But the first half is really good. Richard, what about you? Yeah, I'm probably much the same. I found it was a better episode than I remembered it being. I haven't seen any of these for years. I enjoyed it. Some of it didn't really resonate with me because look, there really is none of that pantomime tradition or any of that here in Australia and this is chock full of pantomime tropes. It is another example we've mentioned many times over the last 70 episodes. Sometimes the goodies episode rises or falls based on how familiar you are with the source material they're referencing and it's fair to say, as you say, in Australia we are not familiar at all with this stuff. Like, we're aware of it because Ricky Gervais' extras did an episode about this. Well, the, oh, let's the, face the it. Bill had a panto episode. Yeah, I mean, know. let's face it, most popular UK series do something about panto at some point. Yeah, so we're kind of familiar with the, the ideas and the tropes, but it's not something that we all went to see as kids. No, and every time they've sort of tried to do it here, it really hasn't worked. No. Well, I suppose, let's face it, the other thing is, I mean, Christmas here, it's high summer, you know, you're really all you're doing is winding down work for the year and then taking January off to watch the cricket. I mean... <laughs> You're right, this is a very different episode. There's really none of them as the goodies in this. It's very visual, but there's really not a lot of story to it. So it doesn't open, as we've said, with the usual credits. It opens with a movie trailer-type opening, sort yes. of a homage. The whole concept of the story, obviously, is it's, it's a big piss take on pantos, and the idea that the audiences who go obviously really can't stand them. You know, they go because the kids obviously enjoy it all because it's a tradition. Yeah. Well, it comes up as next from the Goody's House of Humour, which obviously is Hammer House of Horror. Yeah. And it's sort of using the banality, really, I guess, of panto tropes as horror themes. So you have the man in drag as the ugly sisters, which is a very old tradition in pantomime, Mm. the pantomime dame. You have the audience getting to the point where they're going to shoot themselves when they have the compulsory audience sing-along. And they do shoot themselves. You yes. <laughs> that is not just an inference to suicide, it is on screen multiple suicides. Yes, and the song I lift up my finger and say tweet tweet is apparently a panto standard. Plus, you know, yeah, you have the audience being bored when the guy comes on to play the xylophone to hide the fact they're changing sets, that sort of stuff. And then, of course, their version is you have the dwarf hats coming along the seats as a thing on Jaws. Yes, just when you thought it was safe to go back to the pantomime, which, of course, was the tagline for Jaws 2. Yeah, so that's really the whole setup of the episode. But, of course, it then opens with a very familiar voice doing the narration. Yes, Richard Bryars turns up. Yes. Who at this stage would have been a 
big household in the UK mm. because The Good Life finished a couple of years ago. And also familiar to Doctor Who fans for his role as the chief caretaker in Paradise Towers in 1987. Yeah, well, I was actually going to say he then hit the big time when he went, was in the Branner movies, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's done a lot of work. His opening narration I found was really, really good. I enjoyed all the stuff about Snow White living with seven little men, how shocked the neighbours were. Um, there's some really good stuff in there, and I was laughing quite a lot at this and really enjoying the intro. Well, you've clearly got the bit with the dwarf, which has got a quite a risque, well, not it's not even undertone. I mean, it's very <laughs> no, obviously it's on screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely overt. She's very, uh, a very satisfied Snow White, I think so. Yes, I think so. And you see the dwarf sort of come happily staggering out of the house. Well, even the last one, he goes into the house and just turns to the camera and does a big wink, you know. <laughs> and and then, does then, a, then, <laughs> But, of course, we then have the thing, and again, slightly more risque, where Snow White runs off with the prince, who is a woman in man's clothing. Well, that's another panto thing. It's that principal boy, and it feeds into the stuff they're complaining about later in the episode, because the tradition in panto was the principal boy would be played by a female. And the idea of the whole thigh-slapping thing, you can tell I did a bit of research on this, Um, the whole thigh-slapping thing, it comes from the 19th century because putting a shapely girl in a doublet and hose and have her slap her thighs was a way for the male adults in the audience to ogle her without creating a scene. <laughs> and of course the tradition of having men play female roles and vice versa also was common in the Shakespearean time as well. Yeah. Like there, yes. there is a long music hall and theatre set of traditions here that evolved to the modern in inverted commas pantomime. But yeah, it's a very weird but funny opening I think. And plus, and then you get to make the visual jokes then, you know, when she becomes a prince, she starts treating the dwarf, she gets them up to play skittles with them. <laughs> <laughs> and then hires them to be garden ornaments. <laughs> of course, three of them die tragically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Including the one that gets eaten by the giant fish. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you notice with the dwarves, though, who the dwarves are seem to change between scenes, because they actually hired 12 small actors... Uh, little people, I think as they're usually referred to, to play the dwarves. One of them is Kenny Baker, famous for R2-D2, who is one of the two who dies from exposure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so now the idea then becomes that there are three vacancies in the Seven Dwarves, which are filled by Soppy, Grotty and Tim. (laughs) (laughs) I love the spit where they are marching along, you just see the dwarves marching along and they're doing their hi-ho, hi-ho, and then you see the goodies at the end. <laughs> Particularly, you get all of that stuff, and I really enjoy it, where they go through and they get hit by the trees. So, you know, Tim gets hit, Bill gets hit, Graham gets hit. Then you keep following Graham, and he gets necked again by the next tree. <laughs> and it allows you to make all the height jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Again now, and again. They go inside the house and then bring the house down when they stand up. And yes. All of that sort of thing, which leads them being lectured or investigated by the head dwarf, which is David Rappaport. Yes. Now, he has got quite a list of credits. For anybody who grew up in my generation, he was one of the voices on Captain Planet and the Planeteers. He actually plays the computer, or the evil computer, I should say. Well, that's a little bit after my time. I was going to say Time Bandits, but yeah. there you go. Time Bandits, The Young Ones was another one that he did. Yes, indeed, he plays the demon for Tumch. Yeah, so he, he's got quite a good set of credits, and he's really good in this. He is, actually, yeah. he is. Well, I must admit, I love the scene where he's just walking down. I've been making certain investigations, and I've now come to the irrevocable conclusion that some of us here are not dwarves. <laughs> and we have ways of making you short <laughs> it's a pity in a way that good actors like that their careers were limited by the fact that they were shorter than everyone else yeah. mm. and nowadays they'd have more of an opportunity but back then they were 
something to laugh at or something to stuff inside a R2-D2 suit or something. Yeah, well, look, we mentioned another one. Malcolm Dixon is another one that gets a few lines. Yes. And he was in Time Bandits as well. He was in the Loompa and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So, yeah, those are the sort of parts that they were getting. Yeah. The Chief Dwarf's solution is that he will let them stay as part of the group as long as he can cut their legs off. <laughs> now, they get taken away into the forest to be lopped, but manage to escape, where it really then becomes the babes in the woods. Although I do like the way that they subvert the joke where the narration is, although he tried, the dwarf couldn't cut their legs off. And the narration says it as though it was a moral thing. Yes. And you cut to the vigils where he just couldn't lift the axe. I love the bit where he's looking down the shaft of the axe with the sight, yes. sliding up their legs. Yeah, all this stuff's really good. I'm really oh, I, I must admit, that was really funny. There's some stuff where they're in the wood where Tim keeps calling Bill Puss, which is a shout-out to Dick Whittington, yeah. which is another quite popular panto. Now, this, I think, is where it starts to take a slightly more unusual turn when we meet the fairy godmother. Played by Tim. Yes. Who gets to obviously have some interaction with himself. Yes. He wants to help them reach London, but he wants to send them the plot expedient way, <laughs> which he does by scaring them out of the shorter route with the man playing the xylophone. <laughs> Now, of course, they are lost as the babes in the woods. We go through that. They are then obviously captured by the Huntress characters. And this, again, is the women in the male hero roles type deal. And they have the whole thing. You know, men are stuck as dwarves, pantomime animals, buttons, which is a traditional character from Cinderella, pantomime Dane Ugly Sister type roles, etc. So on the question of the castle, that was filmed at Arundel Castle, which is one of the larger, more modern castles in the UK, often used to double for Windsor Castle, as it famously was in the Doctor Who story, Silver Nemesis. Yes. But it's got that, you know, that fancy Windsor-style opening and the high walls and all that sort of thing. But again, you can see, I think here, that there's a few more extras than you would have gotten in a BBC series. There's a mm. bit more filming than they would have gotten, and I think there's a bit more time available. So you can see that money yeah. flowing through at this point. Yeah, now, of course, they're captured here and they're put to work and they're dressed as buttons from right. Cinderella, right. Who, who is sort of the servant of Cinderella's father, the Baron Hardup in the Pando tradition, and is Cinderella's friend and confidant. And, and was killed by Bill in his horror version yes. of, of Cinderella way, way back <laughs> yes, in way back. gender education. Yes, that's right. And, and the idea with buttons is quite often it's sort of an unrequited love character for Cinders. <laughs> they're obviously put to work and then we have the big musical number, M A N. Bell's work. <laughs> that wasn't a bad number. Again, it was very well staged, it was very well filmed. Yeah. And a bit of time was spent on it. Clearly it was. I mean, look, again, you go through some of the tropes. They're dressed as genies. They're dressed mm. as Man Friday, which is perhaps slightly more problematic. Uh, yes. And they're dressed as the pantomime geese. Playing lots of golden eggs. Yes. But, of course, when they're worn out, they're thrown on the scrap heap. <laughs> the literal scrap heap. Cut yeah. to ad break. Yes, that was very strange, seeing an end of part one there that wasn't a fake end of part one. Yes. And part of me inside hoped there'll be an ad. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, we come back after the ad break and the goodies and all the other male panto characters are basically on the scrap heap. And, of course, we have the whole thing about how the men are made to play stuff like pantomime animals, the back end of a cow, buttons, the ugly sisters, etc. And, of course, we go through the seven dwarves, that sort of stuff. Obviously, the idea here is that the female characters that are too good for too long, so we're going to invade the castle. It gets a little bit problematic at this point, perhaps. You have, obviously, more pantomime tropes here. I mean, you have the bit where they're dressed as the six-legged cow. <laughs> it's interesting where they go through pantomime alley 
if you're a Harry Potter fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably, what is it, Diagon Alley? Diagon Alley, yes. Where, again, you have all the people selling the pantomime trope equipment, mm. you know, the pies that you can throw, you can have the pumpkins, etc. But, yes, they wind up in a six-legged cow skin. And that cow that they used to get into the castle is actually very clever. It's probably the mm. best part of the second half because in true Goody style, it's not just a cow inside, it's a whole sort of World War II bomber <laughs> yes. or submarine or something. <laughs> and they do go through the whole, where's Tim, we've lost Tim, and all that sort of thing. And that for me is the highlight of the second half. Yes, plus including the bit where the hunting ladies come out and ride the cow <laughs> and then get the two bricks <laughs> behind its... That's well, right. Yes, behind its genitals, clearly to make it jump the wall. <laughs> it jumps very high. Yes. <laughs> This really is where the episode really takes a sharp turn in direction. I, I must admit, I really struggled with this last part. and I really enjoyed the first half. The second half, I thought, was quite weak, and this last part particularly, I got nothing out of Well, you sort of have the very strange bit where Tim's missing from the cow skin, mm. and then they suddenly go in, and he's actually standing there as the sort of fairy godmother, complete with violin case, obviously, in the godfather theme. Yeah. And then, you know, it's sort of, a, well, me being the fairy godmother was just a camera trick. It was actually Tim all along. Yeah pulling off the wig yeah well they have the bit first where he actually says he's going to hit them with his fairy wand and it turns into a lightsaber that was very odd that was really odd and then the bit where it passes through bill and yes yeah. so so we, we should probably just say this kind of all degenerates well not degenerates that's maybe too strong a word but it certainly turns into a long version of what perhaps in the old days would have been a filmed sequence mm. um, or a filmed insert sequence as we call them and it's all about that fight between the male and female pantomime characters slash actors. Yes. And it does throw in some lightsabers for no apparent reason. Mm. I got completely lost in here. To me, it was kind of like watching a fight scene in a Michael Bay Transformers movie. <laughs> I know that stuff was happening. I'm just not sure who was doing what. It's an interesting direction because it's that very, very tight editing. You sort of see one swing and then a close-up on the other one jumping back and then lunging forward again. You know, and you sort of swipe down and then cut to Graham going very close up on Graham, like clutching his arm because he's just been hit. It was quite an interesting way to put together. But yes, the culminating scene is where Tim swings on the chandelier. And of course, clearly they can see up his dress and work out he's a man. And then it really just descends into an all-in brawl. There really is no plot from that point on. Hmm. It's just a lot of colour and movement. And I was sitting there just completely oblivious as to what was going on. The episode didn't lose me in terms of, look, I'm not finding this funny it genuinely lost me in terms of I don't know what's going on here. The upshot of it seems to be that the male pantomime characters win the fight. The women then decide, oh no, we'll reverse the roles and we'll become subservient to you, really. And then the goodies take off of them before the other male panto characters can get involved. Mm. Really? It's quite a problematic ending. It's not uh, hashtag me too. It's not. And even for 981, it's a bit hill. And I guess you can see here, to go back to our earlier discussion where the humour of the goodies was perhaps starting to look a little bit outside of the modern era. Yes. I mean, look, we can say, I mean, this we're now firmly in the era of alternative comedy. I mean, let's face it, this season, the goodies, we're only six months away from the debut of the young ones. It's not the first alternative comedy, but it's probably the big landmark series. Mm. And Kenny Everett had started on TV by yes. now as well? So you can sort of see, and really the whole idea of alternative comedy was that it was the opposite of that sort of sexist, outdated comedy that was being sort of pushed in the 70s. Well, of course, we then have the final end where they're back in the dwarf's house and Bill and Graham are sitting back at a table, front patio, being served by the women. And, of course, we have Tim giving the slightly risque, 
they're going to give them what boys like best. And it turns out to be xylophone playing. Um, yes, one, one production note. I actually have two production notes on this. The first was the collapsing house was probably the moment, I think, where the goodies came closest to being seriously injured. Out of all the stunts and everything they did, this is the one. Because the house was supported by iron struts. Oh, goodness. And Jesus. one of them, yes, came loose. And as the house started to collapse, one down and belted them all across the back of the head and did them forward. Tim also had a moment of truth when it was time to go on the Kirby wire uh, when he was being the fairy godmother. The chap who set up the Kirby or the flying harness said, oh yeah, it's safe, this is what we'll do with it. Apparently jumped on it and went smash straight into the wall. <laughs> and then sat away and went and rigged it. No, I think it's all right now. And then didn't test it himself, put Tim in it. And apparently Tim was sort of like, I don't know what I'm going to do if this goes wrong because I'm trapped here now. <laughs> and he did say it was a very frightened fairy godmother that was hanging from the ceiling. I can imagine. <laughs> so look, we'll sum up the episode. I really don't have anything new to say other than what I've said throughout. The first 10 to 15 minutes I've really enjoyed. It's not traditional goodies, but it's very funny goodies. Yep. A lot of good gags. As the second half went on, I got less and less involved in this. And as I said, by the last six or seven minutes... I just didn't know what was going on, and frankly, I was just waiting for this to end. Okay. Yep, I can only agree, I think, just thinking about it and, and listening to what we've all been saying. Uh, yeah, the, the opening is, is strikingly different. There's a lot of good stuff early on. I think once they reach the scrap heap, the episode hits the scrap heap as well. And then from there, it's not great, you know, problematic in some instances and just straight up strange in some others. So One note I did have is that large portions of the script, the goodies came close a couple of times to actually doing a stage version of the series, and one of which would have been potentially a Christmas pantomime. This script is actually quite heavily recycled from that. So I think on stage it would work very differently than what this was, mm. because as you said, Richard, a lot of it isn't helped by the way it's filmed and cut. Mm. And if you're actually seeing it with real people live on stage, maybe it would make more sense. Maybe. I don't know. We'll move on to our regular segments, though. So, tropes. Well, sadly, I think blackface gags perhaps are a goodies trope. Mm. And there, there is one here. I get that Man Friday is obviously a pantomime trope and Robinson Crusoe was a popular pantomime, but the fact they're doing a blackface joke, I think, at this stage... Pretty late to be doing that, isn't it? Let's face it, you would still have had blacked up actors in pantos at that time I mean look they're not doing anything that wouldn't have been done I wouldn't think in the pantomime world mm. but I would suggest the fact that they're still doing a blackface joke at this point probably doesn't help the argument that they're not dated it's not a goodies trope but this is just chock full of stuff from pantomimes yeah, which is something they have mined before yes uh, we see it in punky business we see it in gender education and a number of others yeah mm-hmm I didn't have any others because I don't really seem to make fun of any of their usual targets. No, it, it is a very untraditional episode. Yeah, Which, nice. yeah, I think is a strange creative choice for the first of the season. What couldn't they get away with today? Blackface once again. The audience members putting the guns to their heads. And pulling the trigger. Yes. No one, there's no cutting away from that. So. No. I mean, look, I get it's done in jest, but I, I don't think you could do that now. Most of the gender politics, particularly in the last third, yeah. I, I think it just wouldn't be done now. I don't know whether you'd be able to do the ranty dwarves now. I, um... It is the sort of thing you could imagine being done in a stand-up sketch. Whether you do it on a drama or a comedy, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I don't think you'd do this episode these days. I think in the UK, even pantomime is what it was. It is very of its time. Favourite gags? I'm going to go with David Rappaport as the chief dwarf. I actually thought he was probably the best thing in this. It is a very good performance. I'm going to go for the segment of the goodies when they're first dwarves. Not just getting hit in the face with the tree, but then the bit where Graham's completely necked by the second one. Because you sort of expect, okay, yep, 
there's a tree gag that's good. It was very funny. And then there's another one that just hits you in the face. <laughs> the time is really good. It's Graham doing a pratfall. What more do you want? Yep. And for me, it's not necessarily a gag, but the man, that's how we spell work, dance sequence. For a father whose two children uh, perform on stage quite regularly, it was yeah. interesting and entertaining to see that. So I think I probably took a lot from that. Very good. So we'll continue with the final season of The Goodies next week with Robot. And on your way to being sacked from The Goodies and being replaced by a robot, why don't you take a walk in the Black Forest? You've been listening to The Goodies Pirate Podcast, the Australian podcast that puts the good in goodies. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or your thoughts on upcoming episodes. So please drop us a line by email at pirategoodiespc at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at at pirategoodiespc or find us on Facebook at facebook.com stroke pirategoodiespc. Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. I'm not a dwarf. Nor me. I nearly am. <laughs> Don't be hard on us. We were desperate for a job. So, you lied about your height, did you? Yes. I'm five foot three and a half. A, a giant! giant.